Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today's guest has been talking about your neck of the woods for over 20 years. Al Roker is America's weatherman appearing on the Today Show, Nightly News, and a host of other television and news shows over the years. He has a knack for channeling his on-air charisma into many different media, including pinning a New York Times bestseller, dishing out award-winning cookbooks, and lending his voice to critically acclaimed movies. Today, we'll learn about Al's passion for weather, how he has evolved with the ever-changing media landscape, and how he manages his work-life balance. That's today on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Al. Hey, Doctor. Thank you so much. It's great being here with you. Hey, well, this we're, we're really excited about the Weather Geeks format. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we have one of the legends of our field today uh, joining us on Weather Geeks, uh, Al Roker. Um, everyone knows him, and it's America's weatherman. Al, I want to go all over the place today. Sure. So we, I, I know you have a, a new book out there, The Ruthless Tide. We're going to get all into that. But mm-hmm. before we go there... Uh, this is Weather Geeks. Uh, how big of a weather geek are you, and how did you end up in weather? Is it something you always wanted to do? Well, it, that, that's the uh, kind of the irony of it all, uh, in that I was, like everybody else, I, mean, I was interested in weather. I watched the Weather Channel, uh, I mean, the, the weather forecasts on my local ch- uh, channels. Uh, I grew up in New York City, but I, I really had no interest or desire to be on TV. The closest thing I came uh, there was a, a local weatherman at, at uh, WNBC in New York. His name was Tex Antoine. And uh, he was not only a weatherman, but he was and a meteorologist. Uh, he had been in the Air Force during World War II. But he was also uh, an artist and uh, hosted an art show. And, you know, back in those days, you know, you were a master of all trades. Right. And, and he had a character called Uncle Wethby. And Uncle Wethby was kind of a... A character that stood up. It was a uh, like a not quite a doll, but it was a almost a three dimensional uh, representation of him, a cartoon version of him. And for the kids in the audience, he would dress Uncle Wethby every every evening on on the uh, six o'clock news. And this is what you're going to have to wear to school. Sometimes Uncle Wethby had a, a bathing suit and a and a beach ball. Sometimes he had on a yellow rain slicker. And I was always fascinated by Uncle Wethby. Uh, <laughs> Because I was a bit of a, I liked to think I was a cartoonist, and uh, and and so I just was fascinated by that. But th- then I forgot about it. I went on to uh, go through high school and went to the State University of New York at Oswego, which, as it See? happens, has a you know a top notch meteorology department. Yes, uh, which I had no interest in whatsoever. Uh, however, uh, it was a, 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 a college roommate of mine told me take take intro to meteorologist with this uh, meteorology with this guy because sometimes he enjoys the fruit of the vine on a on a sunday night and doesn't show up for class on monday <laughs> and i thought that sounds like the kind of class i want to be in 
Uh, so I, I took an intro to meteorology class. I took a, an ecology. That's how old I am. Uh, back then, before it was environmental science, it was ecology. Oh, we, we still have a very good uh, ecology program at the University of Georgia. And I know your, your wife yes. is a fellow UGA alum. And I'm, a bulldog. I'm, yeah, and, uh, and you, the Odom School of Ecology is quite well known. Yes. And, and so, yeah, uh, but again, I took these classes with no, no plans of using it. And in fact, didn't plan on being on TV. True story, my department chairman in the radio and TV department told me that I had, after I took my first television performance class, he said, Roker, you have the perfect face for radio. Uh, <laughs> and and so, yeah, I didn't think anything of it. And at the end of my sophomore year, uh, they were looking for a weekend weatherman uh, in, in Syracuse, New York, which is the next biggest city from where my school was. And he put me up for the job. I did a tape at school. He took it down. Uh and because they, it was a small station, and they said, listen, the news director said, I can afford to pay you $10 a newscast. Now, there were wow. four newscasts on the weekend. That's 40 bucks. I'm thinking, yes, I'm rolling it, and I'll just do this until I find something else. And, now, what, uh, what was yeah. it like that? What was it like doing a weather presentation at that time, as compared to now? I mean, was it pretty? I imagine it was pretty rudimentary. It was pretty time. rudimentary back then. Uh, we would get two uh, satellite loops, black and white satellite loops that were, by the time they came in, were already about eight hours old, um, and they came down our network feed. We were a CBS affiliate, uh, so there'd be one for the morning slash noon newscast and one for the evening newscast. And and our maps were, at the time, uh, magnetic. They had been painted, and you had put symbols on them, and the temperatures with mag magnetic numbers that were cut out of this flexible magnetic material. And, and that was about, you had a chroma key, uh, and, and usually that was, that's what you had your uh, satellite loop in, again, black and white, and that was it. And, and you did your maps, and we, we had a somewhat sophisticated system of sliding maps but uh, uh, you know, that was a pretty simple presentation compared to today. Now, how much? How much? I know. I often talk to a lot of colleagues in the broadcast side, and they always complain about time for the weathercast. How much time did you have? Well, yeah, you know, it, it's funny you bring that up because uh, uh, looking back at it, I, you know, sure, you didn't think you got enough time. But at eleven o'clock, we would get three minutes, three wow. and a half minutes sometimes. Uh, it, I mean, it was a lot of time, and and combined. Today's standards, uh, it's not, it's not a lot, uh, but it's still more than a lot of local TV weather people get. Um, although, you know, depending on the market and how important they feel weather is, uh, some places get more than that. Exactly. That's what I think it does vary by market. Now, so you're you're at this station. You're kind of getting your feet wet. Yep. Uh, somewhere along the way, there was this jump into more of the national market. Talk to us a little bit about that transition. Well, at the end of um, uh, I was I was still in school, and so at the end of my uh, uh, the end, of, I graduated, and six months into it, uh, I had gotten a weekday weather job because the, the the weekday weather guy was not well liked, and they replaced me with him. And six months in, I got a call from uh, this news director in Washington, D.C. at WTTG. Then, then it was Metro Media, now Fox. Uh, and he said, I'd like, I, I'm hearing good things about you. Would you be interested in coming down and you know, giving, seeing if uh, you'd be the right fit? So I did. And I was so naive. Uh, this is before you had an agent or anything like that. He said, <laughs> right. listen, uh, I can't pay you a lot, but you will be on the number one newscast at 10 o'clock if you take this job. And I thought, wow, that would be great. Wow, that's fantastic. 
So I took the job, and about a week into the job, I realized uh, they were the only newscast on at 10 o'clock. But, you know, it's still, it was, it was, it was honing your craft in a major market. And, uh, and the other thing that made it uh, significant was that I, were, I was to meet a person who would have a massive impact on my career and on my personal life, and that was Willard Scott. Uh, he was at WRC, and he was the biggest thing in Washington other than the Washington Monument. And he kind of took me <laughs> under his wing, and he mentored me. And uh, he gave me my two best bits of advice, and I still to this day follow. He said, one, always be yourself, because that's the only person you've got, and they can do whatever they want with you, but they can't take that away from you. And two, never give up your day job. And by that he meant, you know, look, no matter what else you do, uh, the Today Show is your main gig. And that's that's everything else springs from that. That's that's a really p- bit of, uh, interesting piece of advice because I've been told something very similar. As you know, I'm I'm a professor at the University of Georgia. Right. I do all of these other things with the Weather Channel and Forbes, but I, I resonate with that bit, uh, bit of advice as well. So I'm, I'm I'm glad to hear such a legendary figure as yourself got similar advice. Yeah, I mean, and it it really it really. Uh, uh, encapsulates everything and it and it really translates to your personal life as well as your professional life so i um i in fact i just had lunch with willard two weeks ago and he's doing well oh wow i think i saw some of that in your social media yeah he just make sure you're following Al. and he's doing yeah. great yeah make sure you're following al roker and all of his social media platforms he's he's very good and active out there in social media now i want to get back to something you said because uh, as you were sort of uh, being groomed for this next position you said that he said that they're hearing good things about you. If you were to look back on your career, what do you think it was about what you were doing or what you brought to the table that was starting to attract people at that time to who you were and your, your capability? Um, I, you know, it's, it's, that's kind of like, you, 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 you love sausage, but you don't really want to see how it's made. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I don't know. I, you know, I, I think it, um, I, I don't think I took, and I still don't take myself that seriously. I, mm-hmm. you know, to be perfectly honest, uh, I don't, I don't ever call myself a meteorologist. Uh, I am, I'm a weather person. Uh, I've learned enough over the years doing it uh, to, you know, to give a credible presentation. But uh, uh, I, I have a respect for the the material, and I try not to let that get in. I, I always try to remember that. The weather is the most important thing, but let's have a good time if we can. If if the weather is such that you know it's not life and death, it's not you know the end of the world, then you know let's not get too crazy about it. I want let's let's stay right there for a second because that's even now a, a, a discussion. And you know I, I hear people and there are discussions about oh he, he's not a meteorologist, he is a meteorologist. But you, you, the point you're making is you you know enough that you are you connect with people, you have the right personality, and you get the message across. What, what are your thoughts on this whole sort of debate out there, even contemporarily, in terms of what it takes to communicate the message? Well, look, I think you can be the greatest meteorologist in the world, but if you can't communicate that, nobody's going to hear your message. Um, I'm very fortunate in that we have at the Today Show and NBC News. I would I will take my off-air meteorologist and graphic folks pound for pound over any other staff in uh, television staff in the country. 
Um, I've got a, just a terrific team, starting with our senior producer, this woman, Erin McGarry. We've got a, an alumnus from the, the Weather Channel, Sherry Pugh. Uh, got a guy, Don Sunikas, who has been uh, at the Today Show for over 25 years. I've got another guy, Kevin uh, Corvo, who's a, an amazing meteorologist. we got a great guy named uh, Brian Van Aken, who is hands down the I mean, first of all he's a great meteorologist but he is probably the person who can make uh, not to get too into the weeds but our graphics unit is called a WSI Max this guy can do stuff with this that nobody else can and and I think and hum, in a, my humble opinion our graphic presentation on the today show is hands down better than anybody else's um, uh, from our huge video wall to the graphics we use and and so I've got a, an amazing team backing me up. Uh, I may not know all the answers, but I've got people who do. And, and they give me that information and I can convey it. And if you can't convey that, if you're not excited about it, if you're not passionate about it, if you don't, you know, revel in, in new technology and new ways of graphically presenting uh, uh, the weather, you're going to get left behind. You know, because let's face it, we all know right now, anybody can pick up their phone and get the weather. But that that app doesn't give you context. It doesn't give you meaning. It doesn't it doesn't break it down for you to a certain extent of why, okay, it says this, but this is why it might not happen or it might happen or it could be worse. Those are the things that we do uh, that that I think uh, because of the the people I have backing me up, I think, on, on, on NBC News, we do better than anybody else, a Weather Channel notwithstanding. <laughs> and I, I know that you've had some work with the Weather Channel. We're talking with Al Roker, legendary, uh, what we call America's weatherman, uh, here on Weather Geeks Podcast. And welcome back to the Weather Geeks Podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia talking with Al Roker. Al, you really uh, have inspired many people. Uh, I think people tune into you on the Today Show and many of your other platforms. Uh, now, you were talking about how you ended up at Washington, D.C., and uh, ultimately uh, through your partnership, mentorship, and friendship uh, uh, with Willard Scott, who served as a mentor, you uh, uh, ended up there at the Today Show at NBC, uh, nationally televised. Yeah, along with stops in Cleveland and then uh, finally uh, New York City at WNBC, which was a dream come true uh, to, because I'm from New York City. And, and I would, you know, my parents couldn't see me, you know, and let's face it, we always do stuff because of our parents. We want to make our parents. <laughs> That's right. That's and, right. And uh, I remember when I got my first job in Syracuse, it was on channel five and I called my mom and I said, mom, I got a job on TV. And she said, That's amazing. What channel is it? I said, well, mom, you can't see it because you're in New York City. And this is this is Syracuse, New York. It's about 200 miles away. And she said, well, what channel? I said, well, it's channel five. She goes, you're wrong. We have channel five here in New York. I said, yeah, but mom, it's a different channel five. <laughs> a, f a five's a five. It has to be. It's the same channel. It's channel five. I said, no, but mom, the signal of channel five, WHEN TV in Syracuse, New York, can't get down to New York City. Oh, it has to because I, I'm looking at, hold on, I'm going to put it on right now. No, mom, it's a, that's WNEW TV. She said, but it's channel five. And it was like a bad Abbott and Costello routine, you know? Uh, and so when I got the job in 1983 and Dr. Frank Field was, uh, was the, the, the main weather guy and I was going to be his weekend weather person, I thought I'd made, I'd had it made live at five was this legendary, 
uh, uh, news show. It was it, because it had celebrities on it and and uh, lifestyle. It it was a groundbreaking show, and I never thought I would be on Live at Five. And and one of the great things about Live at Five, they had, uh, if you remember, the legendary uh, studio announcer Don Pardo. Oh yes, was, was yes. their announcer, and it would start. The show would start every morning, every night at five o'clock with this lightning bolt, and it's WNBC TV New York, and the music would play, and they, they would take a shot of Don Pardo in front of one of those old RCA bullet microphones, and he'd have his his uh, hand to his ear. He goes, from WNBC TV in New York, this is Live at Five with Jack Cafferty, Sue Simmons, and Frank Field with the weather. So uh, it's my first time filling in. I mean, before, it, it was December of 1983. I will never forget it. And uh, I'm filling in. And so Frank Field starts, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Don Pardo starts it off. And he goes, from WNBC TV in New York, this is Live at Five with Jack Cafferty, Sue Simmons, and Al Roker with the weather. Well, afterwards, I go up to Frank Field, uh, to Don Pardo. I said, uh, Mr. Pardo, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. And, and I just wanted to say, it was a real thrill for me to hear you say my name. And he goes, I know, I punched it for you. <laughs> that is an amazing story here. We're talking to Al Roker. Now, you, you when you get to the Today Show, obviously you're delivering uh, content that people want to hear about the weather on mm -hmm. a day-to-day -day basis. But a big part of what you have done over your career and still do is covering weather and other topics out in the element themselves. Yes. What, what do you enjoy most about that and why do you think it's so important to do that? Well, and and there there are flip sides to it. There are people who say, "Well, you tell people don't go outside, and yet you're outside." Uh, and and it's like, well, we want to give you a sense of what's going on. And so, uh, I, I think it's still valuable. And and look, I have a healthy uh, sense of self preservation. I am not going to put myself in harm's way or my crew. Uh, if if we think it's dangerous, we don't go out. Right. But but I think there is something exciting about it. I think it's, uh, you know, and it, you know that we have to walk a very fine line between uh, um, excitement and exploitation because these are people's homes, their lives, their livelihoods. Uh, and it's not meant for um, consumption for our entertainment, right. but it's, it's really for information. And, well, Jim Cantori uh, and, says and, and so I take that seriously. Yeah, no, I think in a podcast, in the episode one of the Weather Geeks podcast, Ken Torrey, we were talking about this as well. And and he and, and your your answer is very consistent with what he talked about, which is really it's a, a messaging. And also, it's interesting. I, I spoke in Savannah recently and this question came up. Well, why do the meteorologists go outside in the weather? And there was a hearing impaired uh, colleague that came up to me and said, that is most valuable for those um, those citizens uh, to see. Uh, the visual um, uh, markers are more useful for them, and so they really appreciate that. So I, I thought that was an interesting yeah. And, and look, it's it's a visual medium. That's you know it it it's it, otherwise we're doing a or either radio or a podcast. So right, right. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, I've always and I'm I'm going to digress here, but you know there is something about that I love about radio and about the the oral medium. Uh, I've always, when you know, I, every year I host, co-host the uh, Christmas tree lighting. Yes. And there are an array of tele, of radio stations covering the tree lighting. Uh, and, and because you, if you, if you're good at what you do, you paint this picture. And, uh, but, but when we do television and there's severe weather, I, I think nothing, you know, as they say, a picture is worth a thousand words and, and to be able to bring the 
power of, of, of an image to people is, is very valuable. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And uh, and clearly with some of what we're facing now going forward in weather and climate, we need to, uh, messaging is as important as the technology, the weather models, the satellites. Yeah. I think. And I want a little bit later in the podcast, I want to talk more with you about uh, what you, your thoughts on effective weather communication. But what is there a favorite type of weather over your career that you've enjoyed covering or something that sort of resonates or sticks out in your mind about something you've covered in the past? You know, I still, to this day, um, covering Superstorm Sandy was, uh, you know, awe-inspiring. Uh, it, it really taught you about the power of water, um, that it will find its own way. Um, yes, as as we saw in with Katrina and exactly. Harvey and other and, water and, is the most dangerous aspect yeah, of these storms. Absolutely, and and to watch, um, I mean, we literally traveled two thousand miles covering this storm. We started in Key West and we went up to New York and then back down to New Jersey and back to New York again. And um, it was it, it was probably one of the most frightening moments I've ever had, uh, and one of the most in a sense, um, uh, if I can use the word, uh, uh, beautiful things I've ever seen. And that, you know, a, the, the morning after, after we survived um, uh, the, a dune collapse and, and this breach and, and walking out at, at uh, 5 a.m. And, and looking at this landscape that, you know, we were about half a block away from the beach and the street and everything around it was covered with about a foot and a half of sand. But wow. it, so it looked like under the street lights or under our lights, because there was no power, it looked like snow. And I, and at first it kind of threw me off. I said, what, what the, oh my gosh, this is all sand. It's all come in. And it went back, you know, a good half mile. Wow. I've never seen anything like that. Yeah, I've, I, I'm, I'm trying to visualize that because I, I I've not seen anything like that at all. You know, I mean, literally seeing a, a Parking meters. All you saw was the top of the, you just saw the parking meter. There was no, you couldn't see the, the, the pole holding it up. Oh my goodness. Now, and you know, everything uh, underneath was sand. Well, now, oh see, my see, seeing all of this, uh, Al, do you, I mean, you're, you're there in New York. I mean, you, but you get around the country. Do you think municipalities, uh, stakeholders, policymakers are understanding or thinking more about sort of weather or even even climate in their planning or preparations because I know one of the things with Sandy was uh disruption to the to the MTA system there mm -hmm. the subway oh, yeah. and others and it could have um, been a lot worse it could have uh, been worse absolutely but what are your thoughts well, on just how we're planning as a society for weather events well i think some places are better than others others you know you look at Miami uh Miami Beach and they are going full steam ahead because, look, as you know, they, they experience on a fairly regular basis now sunny day flooding. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, and so they, they, they've got a project going to raise uh, streets, to uh, raise the street levels, to put in all these pumps. I mean, it, it's funny. The first book I wrote on, on, on this kind of topic was, was Storm of the Century in 1900. And after Galveston got devastated, they put in a massive public works project to literally raise the city level. And build that seawall, and uh, 
which is unfortunately now inadequate. But it's the same thing that's happening now. Some some cities are and, and, and coastal areas are saying, you know what, we better prepare for this. And others are just blithely going along with uh, a nonstop development along coastlines. Sixty percent of our, our, our population in this country live along a coast. Yeah, you absolutely. Know? And, and yeah. by the way, just because you're not along a coast doesn't mean you will not feel the wrath of some of these systems. Well, we, well we know that we know that in Atlanta with Irma last year. Exactly. We were, my, my kids were out of school three or four days because of the inland effects of uh, the decaying Irma. Uh, we're talking with Al Roker here on the Weather Geeks podcast. Welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. We're talking with Al Roker, and you just heard him talk about some interesting aspects of societal preparation for weather events. I want to pivot now to Al's new book, uh, Ruthless Tide, The Heroes and Villains of the Johnston, Johnstown Flood, America's Astonishing Gilded Age Disaster. The first thing that came to mind when I saw that you had written this book, Al, is why did you pick this particular weather event? Well, the last one we did, uh, uh, Storm of the Century, which was the Galveston Hurricane of 1900. Uh, and, and, you know, the, my first thought was, oh, maybe we should do something on Katrina. But, you know, I, I think the, it still needs a little more uh, distance. But what I found fascinating about the story of the Johnstown Flood, which took place in 1889, was that, it was an environmental, it was a man-made environmental disaster that warnings were ignored, that what would be then the 1% wanted something and they didn't really care about others. And ignoring, uh, ignoring warnings, ignoring concerns, they went ahead and, and built this uh, fishing and hunting club damming up a river and creating a, a, an artificial lake that a number of critics said, this is not going to hold. This will flood at some point. It's not if, it's just when. Just when. And and unfortunately, a, a storm of epic proportions dumped over 12 inches of rain in a very short period of time. And uh, within a matter of hours, the, the, the dam, the earthen dam gave way. And 20 million tons of water traveling at upwards of 60 miles per hour with uh, crests of 60 feet or more slammed through the Kanama Valley and killed over, by some estimates, as many as 3,000 people. It's still the deadliest flood, pure flood in American history. Yeah, and I think, you know, and I, I, I appreciate that you're bringing this to attention, but I, I still get the sense that many in the American public don't, A, realize that fact that you just mentioned, and also still take for granted just how deadly flooding can be. Oh, Even yes. today yeah. in a contemporary context, they'll still drive through a flooded road. Because I know. They gotta get their, I, get when their I watch it, and I, you'll stand there and watch these, you know, I've, I've been on remotes where, you know, we've covered flooding and you see these people pushing through and they think, oh, I've got my SUV. And, and no idea that, you know, a, 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 you know, a foot of water, you know, can float a car. Or, yeah, or the, vehicle, the, tire, the buoyancy of the tires themselves help with that. Yeah, you know, they, they have their own buoyancy. You know, exactly. that, that, that four, you know, that, that six inches of water traveling at four miles per hour can knock you off your feet. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it, it's astonishing, but yet people, they just, oh, it's just water. Oh, yeah, I turned it on, I turned it off. Well, when you can't turn it off, uh, it, it finds its own way. And so this story, I think, is one that 
uh, changed changed America's perception of natural disasters. Uh, uh, it gave rise to to and and really cemented the reputation of the Red Cross. Clara Barton, uh, uh, became, her her organization became the organization it is because of the Johnstown flood. Oh, wow. That's uh, that's an interesting fact that I wasn't aware of. Yeah. I mean, and and what was interesting, you know, you, when you think 1889 and, and women, of course, were were in a sense kind of second class citizens. And but because there was so much chaos, uh, she used that to her advantage and was able to establish, uh, uh, you know, literally tent cities, field hospitals, uh, uh, commissaries, all these things, uh, and, and and was able to do it with with ruthless efficiency, and and so much so that that people were were astonished at this organization, and and so uh, it it really put the Red Cross on the map. And eleven years later, when she because she was no spring chicken, when she was getting ready to retire, uh, she was actually uh, uh, financed by one of the newspaper magnets to help in the rescue effort and recovery effort of, of the Galveston hurricane. Wow. This is, this is just fascinating. The type of thing that you're going to only hear if you talk to or listen in on the weather geeks podcast, we're, we're grateful to have Al Roker here with us today. Um, you talk about this particular flood and make sure you you go out there and take a look and read this book, Ruthless Tide. Um, I, I can't wait to uh, finish taking a look at it myself. You talk about communicating flood threats or extreme weather head, uh, threats in general. We're in a different age yes. than what the folks were in the Johnstown flood. We have social media now. We have Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat. I don't know how many of those you're on, but I know you're on at least Twitter and, and Instagram because I follow you there. How do you view communicating these threats using these new techniques and uh, and um, and capabilities? I mean, I, I I think they actually have pros and cons in the sense that they're immediate, but I think they could be overutilized. You've got all kinds of people out there getting messages out. We've got a system out as we're taping now. There's a system out in the Gulf of Mexico, yep. and I'm seeing all kinds of people tweeting and, and talking about. And that's the problem. It. There's no. What, is your, what as, are your thoughts? As, as I I tell my kids, I've got a, a daughter, 31. I've got a another daughter who's who's 19 and I've got a son who's turn, about to turn 16 and I tell them just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's true just because it comes across your feed on your phone doesn't mean it's true do you know the source can you trust the source uh, and I think that's where you know, whether it's an NBC news or a weather channel I mean people know that they can trust what we're going to say Uh, uh you know, you know, in in ruthless tide, we talk about how, uh, thanks to this, uh, to one uh, courageous telegraph operator who remained at her post, uh, even though she knew the flood was coming, she kept t- sending out messages uh, down the line and down the valley, uh, so that people knew what was coming. But unfortunately, once it got to the end uh, in Johnstown, how did you disseminate it? How did you get? And and by the time they got the message, it was too late. This thing was roaring toward them. Wow! Uh, it's it's uh, yeah, when I when I kind of sat down after finishing it, I uh, I was just I was just floored. Uh, I I worked with a terrific research guy by the name of Bill Hoagland, and and when I looked at what he put together, and I thought, my God, what this was must have been like for that era. I mean, something that was. If you can picture, it's called an un, you know, 
it, one newspaper called it an unleashed monster. Yes. This thing was traveling, and because of the the, the uh, geography of the valley, it came to a it was like a funnel and pushed to a point to where Johnstown was. So the water started kept kept rising and you know gained in speed, and it was taking literally taking out locomotives, fa steel foundries, barbed wire companies. I mean, you you uh, uh, homes businesses. So that by the time it got to Johnstown, it had literally boiling ore, iron ore in it. It had locomotives. It had train cars. It, 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 it's hard to be even fathom what this was when it slammed into Johnstown. Yes. And, and, and that's, I think that's an interesting part of the story here to just understand, one, the power, sheer power and force of the water, but all of these other aspects of the flood, the other debris. Uh, and and I, I particularly appreciate your story about the human element there in the warning because it reminded me a lot of Gary Sitkowski there at the New Jersey Mount mm -hmm. Holly Weather Service office during Sandy we were talking about early and how he was sort of making these desperate pleas. And we, we dealt with this topic on the television version of Weather Geeks because there were some that say that the human element and meteorological and weather forecasting and, and warnings is going to go away. And I think your story suggests that that's just not likely to happen. Well, A, happen. I don't think it's likely, nor should it, because, you know, you, listen, you can have all the automation you want, uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, meteorology is as much a, an art as it is a science. Um, yes. You know, gut reaction, uh, gut feelings, um, you know, the human element you take it out. Yes, you can. I mean, look, that's part of the problem with a lot of these apps. They're algorithms and formulas. Yes, yes. They speak on this, please, because the app, the, what I call app atmospheric science. Uh, everyone sort of, I, I still think about people that are pulling up their apps. I think about a, a particular sports team that their the manager was looking at their their app and they decided not to close the, 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 uh, the retractable roof on their stadium. Uh, they, yeah, this app, Thing has become a problem now. They're useful, so I don't want to bash. No, apps. no, I mean, they're, they're you listen. But yeah, I, the on, on, a, on, a, on an average day or whatever, that that that's fine. But when it comes down to critical thinking and intuiting, an app's not going to get it. Yeah, I, I I agree. And in a rapidly evolving weather situation as well, whether it be a severe storm or, or a land falling hurricane. I really appreciate that you you really emphasize that point. We're talking with Al Roker here on Weather Geeks Podcast. I want to shift the gears here because a lot of people may not realize this about you, Al, that your interests are varied. I mean, you've made cameos in Sharknado, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Um, is that cool to you or just another part of the job of sort of uh, making sure you're sort of uh, getting word out and being exposed in different arenas? Well, look, I... I um if it gets to the point where I don't sit back and go, wow, I got to do that, uh, then it's time to get out. Uh, I love what I do. I mean, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm sitting here right now, uh, here or here in New York. We're at the one of the, I mean, the legacy uh, radio stations, not just in New York City, but in, in, in America, uh, WOR. I mean, this thing has so much history. So I, I appreciate that. Uh, when I walk into 30 Rockefeller Plaza, there is no other building like it in the world that is a, a, a temple to broadcasting that was built specifically for radio and then television. 
I, 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 I still look up at the murals on the ceilings and on the walls. I, I enjoy the terracotta floors, the, the, the terrazzo floors, I should say. I mean, there is, I mean, the idea that I'm holding a book that I wrote is still amazing to me. My, my parents are gone now, and my mother was a voracious reader. And when my first book came out, the smile on her face was everything. That her boy wrote a book. Yes. That somebody was going to buy. And, 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 you know, even something as goofy as like having some millennial come up to me and said, I saw you, I, I used to watch you when you were a character on The Proud Family. <laughs> uh, that is, you know, I mean, that's kind of cool. It's cool. I mean, that's, and that's, that's right. I think that, uh, you know, you, uh, the most successful people are the people that don't feel like they're working. That's just been my experience over my years. I mean, the, the ones that aren't saying, thank God it's Friday, but just saying, wow, no. when can I do what I do again? And so you've written, you've, uh, you've been involved in comic books. Uh, uh, rumor has it and following you a little bit in Instagram uh, that you're a foodie or in the I, food I talk, do like talk. to cook. I have two cookbooks. Uh, I enjoy cooking. Um, I'm, I, I'm one of those people that wakes up thinking, what am I making for dinner? Oh, wow. You know, uh, Not my wife would like you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, uh, you know, yeah, I, I love it. I, I just came back from Vancouver. I, I I've always been interested. I, 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 when I was eight years old, I read my first Sherlock Holmes short story. And, uh, I remember thinking, oh man, I love this. And my mom was a big, uh, mystery thriller reader. And I've always wanted to write murder mystery. And, and I, so I've written three of them called the morning show mysteries and, uh, uh Hallmark is producing them. I'm producing them and, and, uh, co-wrote them, them. And, uh, I just came back from Vancouver where we, uh, just finished, uh, filming the second movie. Oh, wow. And, uh, so the, when, when can we expect the, the well, it'll, it, it'll be on sometime in July. Okay. Uh, with look, the story Holly that. Robinson, Pete, and uh, Rick Fox. Nice. So. Make sure you check uh, check these out. I look forward to them as well. What about, uh, what? what's it like, Al, to start the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade? Yeah, it, it is. Uh, I, I am, I like to consider myself Mr. Holiday because I get to take part in three of what I would say are the quintessential holiday rituals that are broadcast. Uh, I've been doing the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade now for 22 years. Grew uh, up watching it all that time. I do the Christmas tree, the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree lighting. I've been doing that. This was, Before it was even a network show, it was a local broadcast here in New York. And I started doing that in December of 1984. And and I do the Rose Parade. Uh, and, and Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, and so the idea, I mean, I used to, part of my family tradition, like millions of Americans, was to get up in the morning on Thanksgiving. You're still in your pajamas. You're watching the Thanksgiving Day Parade. You can smell the turkey is, is cooking. Uh, and, and in New York, part uh, when the parade was over, you switched over to Channel 11 and you watched Laurel and Hardy and March of the Wooden Soldiers. And that was our, our Thanksgiving. And the idea that people have grown up watching me do this and be part of their Thanksgiving is such an honor. You know, it, it, it's still, uh, and my kids have been on floats. Uh, my little girl was a, a Christmas tree on, uh, on the Santa float one year, another year she was a present. She was like, you know, she was like a gift wrapped box, uh, you know, and, and I, 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 I just can't, I can't, 
I can't say enough about it. You know, to, to be on the Upper West Side when those balloons, when you hear the guy, the, the, the parade marshal go, uh, Snoopy, please join the parade. And all of a sudden around the corner on 77th Street comes this giant Snoopy. And while it's great on TV, to be there when it fills your field of vision, because on TV, there's a natural border. You know, so that, but when you are on, and I, I urge everybody, every American listening, that at some point you've got to come to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and watch this. It is, you will be transformed to a child again. That, that's what I've heard. I've, I've heard it's one of those kind of see the Grand Canyon moments to yes. go to the Macy's Yeah, Parade. a little different. I've seen the Grand Canyon, and they are two different things. I, in fact, I proposed to my wife on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, and, and I had done, I had hosted the, uh, uh, the Fiesta Bowl Parade for NBC when we carried it, and I thought, you know what? This is the play. And we went, to, uh, and I said, I want to propose next year. Uh, on the rim, south rim of the Grand Canyon. I figured it would be, first it would be gorgeous. I wanted to do it at sunset. Uh, and two, it would be efficient because if she said no, only one of us was coming back. <laughs> I'm not saying who, but it lucked out. She said no, I yes, think it so all worked out. I mean, I, you know, his, uh, for those that don't know, his wife is Deborah Roberts, a le legendary journalist in her own right. Uh, yes. And, uh, in fact, alumnus. we are going to be both covering the royal wedding uh, and oh. she's doing it for ABC, and our daughter, who is in school in Paris, is going to be her intern, which I'm a little ticked about because it's like, why did you choose well, mom? Yeah, why did you? Yeah, you well, you know, I got kids. You, you know how that goes. Come I on. know. Well, yeah. we, 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 I want to bring it to a close here. Really appreciate the conversation. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, in-depth dive with Al Roker. Um, just in this last uh, few minutes or so, I mean, you've been such an inspiration for so many in terms of what you do, You're coming into their homes each day, uh, even even for those that, you know, just a representative of the various groups uh, that may not necessarily be represented on TV. I think a lot of people looked up to you from that regard. Um, what do you consider as your sort of legacy from the past and going forward? Uh, I, 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 I guess my feeling is it, um, I would like to think that, uh, A, I haven't wasted anybody's time and B, that, if the time spent with me, whether it was on the Weather Channel or whether it's on the Today Show, that hopefully they feel a little bit better when they turn off the TV than before they turned it on. And and if and if I've informed them and helped them get to their day and make them smile just a little bit, then uh, I think that's that's a that's a good thing to have uh, have been known for. And there, there you have it from Al Roker, Roker, America's weatherman, NBC, and certainly someone that has been an inspiration in my career. Um, you know, as a, an African-American meteorologist, I certainly have looked up to you in terms of what you've been able to do. So I just want to take this opportunity to personally thank you from afar and um, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity and, and also the, the chance to, to talk about this book, Ruthless Tide, because I, I just am so very, very proud of it. It reads like a movie, but it's all true. And, and the other thing is that, that this could happen again, that, these, that, that if we are not careful, if we do not pay attention to uh, environmental rules being relaxed, uh, uh, changes being made uh, uh, without, without proper vetting, 
uh, that we could see another environmental disaster on this scale. On this scale, it it can happen again. Absolutely, Weather Geeks listeners, please go out there and. Uh get a copy of Ruthless Tide. I'm sure it's available at all of the places where you can get the best sellers. And make sure you're also following Al Roker and all of his social media. Al, what's your Twitter handle? uh, Twitter and uh, Instagram at Al Roker. Okay, so follow him and also uh, be sure to follow Weather Geeks as well. We have a new Twitter handle at Weather Geeks, W-E-A-T-H-E-R-G-E-E-K-S. Thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.